Hello, my name is Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, and I'm here with you for another episode of the Global Sport Conversations podcast series on behalf of CISD and SOAS. I'm joined today by Kelly Nascimento De Luca, founder of the Warrior Woman of Football Movement, filmmaker, and football advocate extraordinaire. Kelly, I'm thrilled you could join us today. You wear so many professional hats within the global sports space, working across continents and time zones to raise greater awareness of and opportunities for women and girls to play football and so much more. It's a fascinating mix of the creative and storytelling within the policy and the political push. But tell me, what originally attracted you to sports, particularly football, and how were you inspired to focus on women's football in particular? It's interesting. Um, being from Brazil, that's a very hard question to answer, because although I would not say that like every single Brazilian loves football, it's not really a question that you're asked. You kind of wake up one day and you realize you're either a football fan or you're not. And it's really hard to know because you're so inundated with it. It's especially in my family, like everybody in my family has at some point had something to do with football. So I don't know what day I did. But the interesting thing is, is that I've always focused my attention, energies and interest in equality, not necessarily football first. I've always been focused on and interested in the characteristics of inequality, primarily in race and gender. And I think just because I grew up, right, uh, a fairly aware young person with not a lot of young people around in a country that was extremely male dominated predominantly male. I would say chauvinistic, but I don't want to be judgmental, but it, you know, it's a very male culture. And I also grew up with a father who is very, very African. You know, He's Brazilian, but he's black and very dark. And he was a very famous person in that country. And I very early on noticed that he was the only person that looked like him anywhere we went and any events that we were in and any anything that we were invited to. And even myself, people who looked like me were usually serving. And I noticed these things really young. You know, And the, the gender thing is pretty easy. You know, You're in Brazil, anywhere in South America, it's pretty easy to notice the gender disparity in every room and the gender roles that are immediately sort of as soon as you walk into a room, the gender roles are pretty clear and what's expected of the genders. So that's kind of the thing that always interested me. And I think the the football thing was more just sort of a baseline for everything in my life. And I loved watching football. I love sitting in a room. It's one of those things that I, unless you're making a point not to love it, it's kind of behooves you to enjoy it. Because in any room you walk into, especially in my family, in my house, there's a game going on and they're talking about it. So the more you know about it, the more you're in conversations, right? And I don't think you make that calculation, but it's, it becomes that kids learn how to navigate their environment. And I guess that's how I came to enjoy enjoy football. And I do really enjoy it. I actually really love it. But it never occurred to me to sort of advocate for equality in sports in particular until uh, a few years ago. And I think it had to do with the fact that I realized what I love to do, which is storytelling, and my background and my father's name that I could leverage, right, in that space. And I was confronted with a particularly interesting and, and sort of, you know, alarming story of the young girl that we have in the film. Her name's Laís Araújo, and she's an amazing player from Brazil who only made it as far as she has because of sort of divine intervention, you know, and a lot of, you know, determination on her part. And I was a little alarmed that from a country that has so much talent, it would take that much for her to be seen. Like so many different incredible things happen in her life that culminated in her being seen by the U20 national team coach. So I thought if this is what it takes for her to do it, how could any other girl in Brazil possibly make it this far? And that's when I started to do some research on women's football and the history of women's football. And that was about three years ago. What exactly is the warrior woman of football movement? You know, it sounds like you've led us to your path in terms of what prompted you to arrive at this movement. But what is the warrior woman of football movement? So I know I'm excited to see what it becomes. Right. So when I started researching, I researched for like over a year. And at some point I went to this uh, really good friend, an amazing director who I'd 
partnered with before, who I know his interests and in, uh, and mine lie sort of in the same area of equality. And I said, you know, someone needs to do something about this. Someone needs to write, tell the story. You know, and then very quickly I realized I should be telling the story, right? For many reasons, I could bring more attention to the story, and I could probably get a lot of support in some specific ways by being my father's daughter in terms of, you know, actually having people just even answer a phone call to ask questions. But then I was like, well, you know what? I don't really just want to tell a story. I'm really tired of watching these really often brilliant documentaries that leave you kind of just uh, with a hopelessness because there's so much injustice, there's so much inequality, but it doesn't really give you a way to help or a way to view it where, you know, you can see how it'll change or how to make a difference or or even engage the bigger brands into making a difference. So I started to formulate like, so what do you want? Why do you want to make this movie. And I thought, well, the reason I'd like to make this movie is because I think a lot of the times, especially coming from Brazil, this is very much how Brazilians do things. Like they tend not to change anything until there's pressure. Advocacy, you know, is such a, a difficult and lonely thing to do, right? Because in and of itself, it requires that you step outside what everybody's doing and try to shed light on something that's not going right. So it can be all consuming. So there was very little communication. There was very little knowledge, even when there were big things happening in women's football in Brazil. Uh, you know, it never, people who were here who were some of the most aware people that I knew had no idea. So at first I thought, well, I guess this would be to bring awareness of this issue to the general public. But then when you bring awareness, what are you going to do? When you bring the awareness, already have something available where people can help if they want to, some sort of solutions. So that was part of like what I wanted to do with the website. It was to use the internet, which we have available to us today, which pretty much links everyone in the world to be able to connect these people. Because I think that you know, together, there's a greater voice and there's a greater chance of making change. And, you know, bringing people and little issues out of obscurity puts more focus on them and makes people feel like they have to address them in some way, or at least looking like they're addressing them, you know. So that was the point. Terrific. You know, certainly part of this larger movement, there is the film component, which you've referenced a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit, as much as you can, about the film and why did you decide to focus on this particular element as part of the larger warrior woman of football movement. What do you think it brings to the movement at large? Well, honestly, I, I decided to focus on that because that's what I do. So I figured, you know, do what you know and what you do best. And that's how you'll actually be able to give the most that you can, right? So what I do, I, I like storytelling whether it be through still photography or film photography, I'm a storyteller. So I feel like that is my thing. So that is the place where I can help the most. The rest, I actually had all these ideas that I thought were awesome, but I'm really relying on it being sort of a global effort. So it's to get people together, like people, amazing people that I've met in the process already, like Moya Dodd. And this is something I anticipated. When speaking to Moya Dodd for the first time, like a year or two ago on the phone, I realized that we have this idea for like a web platform where girls can talk to each other and post things and look for help. And local and globally. And she apparently has been working on something like that with some other amazing women for a while, you know, in development. And they're just looking for funding and more time because they all have day jobs. So, you know, my idea was always to, you know, to put this out there, almost like build it and they will come. It's not to reinvent the wheel. It's to, okay, so then I don't need to do that. What I need to do is raise money to help Moya do that. That's part of like Warrior Women of Football Movement. I need to identify these things that are already happening. If they're not happening, figure out a way to get them to happen. If the consensus is with people who know more than I do that this should be happening, help them find a way, help the convening power of this film 
which has a lot of really well-known people in it, bring attention to these issues and help find a way to get these things done. And when they're already trying, you know, there's already an effort to do them, then just find a way to help these people do them. What was one of the unexpected challenges you encountered shooting this film, which is shot in different locations around the world? The biggest challenge, honestly, hands down, without hesitation, is managing all the incredible opportunities that arose as we were doing it. And also figuring in the timeline in which we had to have this delivered. I mean, it can come at any time. The story is not going to change. And the incredible attendance and amazing World Cup in France this summer is still not going to change a lot of things for most girls, right? Immediately. Uh, even though it's, it's great and it's, it's a good thing. But the challenge, though, is that unless we catch this sort of sweet spot time to release this film and roll all this stuff out, like somewhere between the World Cup and the Olympics, there is a lull for another few years of attention, right? Of media attention, which is already super challenged, right? Because it's, what do we get? Women's sports get like 2% globally of sports media coverage. So this is like a good spot to be in. So the challenge was that as we started, and I would get so excited every time I would call someone. And this was the first time that I've ever started any conversation and anything I've ever done with this is Pele's daughter. <laughs> and not because it's something I have strictly morally against it, just because it never really would have helped any other time in my life to do that. But I would because, you know, I wanted them to know that, you know, there was an accountability behind it. At least if it was going to bomb, it was going to bomb big. But also, you know, I wanted like that, that little toe in the door, right? But the incredible thing was that the subject matter, there was a watershed of support, but especially as more people started to hear about it. So the one thing that being Pele's daughter does not get you, I'll tell you right now, in case anybody's going to try is money. So, so the problem was that we would get incredible opportunities on a, on a, on the budget that we had and the time that we had. So unless we all of a sudden were, you know, gifted with this sort of serious Hollywood budget, we were not going to be able to do it. So, you know, we're in Europe and we're getting calls from, you know, why don't you go to Lyon? They're the best. Why don't you go here? You should go see Roma. Why don't you go to Inanduba? So it was, that was the biggest challenge was making a decision based on what I felt was very little understanding of what the outcome was going to be. You know, I'm also curious, though, shooting this film as part of the larger movement, you must have encountered so many unexpected things. And even for someone like yourself, who's so well versed in the game and the culture on different levels, what was perhaps one of the things you learned about the power of sport at large? I've always had sort of incredible faith in the power of sport, especially in the power of football. If nothing, if for no other reason, because it is a game that every single person, you know, well, not every single person, but that the majority of the world identifies with while listening to people talk about football and about especially people who are older, sort of my father's generation, talk about football. It became very clear, and I think that any social psychologist probably already knows this, but that it's not really about football, right? It's about the time in their lives in which they saw these games, in which they saw this person they love play. And it was the game that was playing around when their first child was born the game that was playing around when they fell in love or when their heart was broken or, you know, in a time that was prosperous and they were still hoping for the future or whatever. And these are shared emotions globally. And when you add that to like a game that is shared globally, that's pretty powerful. Those are some pretty powerful sort of things that you can tap into around the world <laughs> with people without having to know much about them, anything about them, really. I found that that kind of little epiphany I had listening to people uh, talk because, you know, it became pretty clear after a while when they were talking about a goal or a certain specific something that they saw my father do, for example, that there was no way that that particular goal could have evoked that kind of emotion. <laughs> you know, not that to take anything away from my father, but it's almost even more amazing, right? It's not it's not to take anything away from anything. It's just even more amazing the incredible connection that this game has 
to people's lives. So when you have something like that, I think it's really hard for it not to be. Right. No, very much. And we talk a lot about sports role to serve as a bridge across cultures and helping to create these common shared histories or these events like World Cups or spectacular goals that help to bring people together regardless of where in the world they are at the time. We talk a lot about the people-to-people exchanges that organically occur in and around the sports world. Um, And this fits into the larger umbrella of knowledge exchange. And I was wondering if you have an anecdote that you could share about how you've seen this actually make a difference. You know, through the foundation that I launched, the Nascimento Foundation, you know, it's a family foundation that the the mission statement is to harness the the power of sport in that way to try to make some change in the world, specifically toward the 17 global goals. And one of the organizations we're working with in Uganda is really amazing. It started by this young man named Victor Ochen. And he was actually the youngest African Nobel Peace Prize nominee in 2016. And his organization is incredible. They aim to rehabilitate children of war, like child soldiers, young girls who've been abducted, and try to sort of assimilate them back into society. And I was speaking to Moses, one of the guys who works with him, and just off the cuff, he was he started talking about how when he goes up into the northern parts of Uganda, and there's so many tribes, and there's so many tribes that have been so incredibly, throughout the last few years even, polarized. But it's like, you know, we talk about our country being polarized. Now imagine like in a small region, like there being 10, you know, different parties, completely polarized. And he said, it's almost impossible to even bring out the people who need to for help. And the only thing that seems to uh, break the ice a little is football. Because, and as he put it, he said, referees know no tribes. Referees are refereeing a game. And when you start playing football, people just come out and start joining and start joining. And it's an, you know, it's a very, very tip of the iceberg, but it's at least sort of the white flag, you know, of communication that you need to even begin to try to start a conversation, which is pretty cool. As part of your advocacy work, you're involved with the Global Goals World Cup, which is being played this week in New York. Tell me, what is the Global Goals World Cup and how did you first become involved in this event? So the Global Goals World Cup is, I think, so super cool. They are these two women, Mike and Enrica, and uh, they have a uh, company in Denmark called Air Sports. And along with the UNDP, they've started this World Cup. And the point of the World Cup is to try to get young women and women of all ages, really, to learn how to advocate for themselves, to learn within the 17 global goals, what are the things that are happening in this world right now that affect them the deepest and the most urgently, and to learn how to talk about it, to give them permission to talk about it and advocate for it in whatever way they are able to, small or large. So the way you play the cup is there are teams of four to eight women. They do not have to know how to play football at all. And every tournament you have in every city they go to, these people can come in from people who work with you in your office or your handball team or people who work with you at the nurses from the hospital who work with you. And you together decide what your goal will be. You pick a goal and then you play for that goal. The games are eight minutes aside and you're judged on how many goals you score, but also and more importantly, on how you've advocated for your goal that you've chosen from the 17 global goals. And what it does is, for example, if you're 15 and your goal is climate action, you can actually just say, you know what, my school presentation this year that I'm going to do for this assignment is going to be climate action. That way, at least my class will know a little bit about climate action. doesn't matter if you have 10 followers on Instagram or, or Twitter. You will, I will now start posting things about climate action because it's not so much about the effect it has on the people who you're talking to, it's about the effect, the empowering effect it has on you. 
because women are traditionally raised to not make a fuss and not rock the boat. And I don't think any change is going to come in this world unless women start rocking the boat. So the way I got in touch with them was I literally had my friend say, call her up and tell her I want to be her ambassador. And that was it. Yeah. (laughs) And one of the things about these World Cups is that because it still evolves pretty organically, you know, Mike and Enrica are called to places to, can we do a World Cup? A lot of the times they'll give them the blueprint and say, you know, you need to organize it, fundraise for it, you know, and here's how you do it. Oh, that's terrific. And given your multi-year involvement, what would people be surprised to know about the Global Goals World Cup? One of the things that surprised me and really made me so happy is that one of the Global Goals World Cup, I think a few years ago, maybe three years ago, was in Kenya. It was one of their biggest ones. Uh, Some of them they go to. This one was in Kenya. And, you know, inherently women in African countries don't play football. They're not encouraged to play football. It's a man's game. And there's so many different prejudices around women playing sports. So they didn't know what it would be like, but you know, women are women. And they were like, you know, they gathered momentum. Everybody was really excited. The day of the world cup, a lot of the men in the lives of these women came to the tournament and set up a drum circle and played for the duration of the tournament. And I think the thing that surprised me the most is that this happens in so many places. And I feel that it's really encouraging because I feel like a lot of the issues that we have surrounding gender equality and surrounding, yes, a lot of them are very, very real, but a lot of them are just imposed on cultures and there's not much discussion. So people just sort of keep perpetuating them when in truth, there are many people who don't really feel the need to and who see nothing wrong, especially in the newer generations with, you know, women playing football. So there is a lot of uh, recent discussion about equality and equity for women through sports, which helps to instigate these larger conversations uh, in many different societies. But what about equality and opportunity for women of color within sports? What are some of the biggest obstacles for, for gaining equity and equality, whether in pay or opportunities or beyond, for women of color in sports and particularly in football from your perspective? And how can we perhaps start thinking about finding solutions for this. So the places that I've been where there is most inequality, there's such inequality that I don't know, and I hope this doesn't sound too ignorant, that we're at a place where we can actually identify that there is inequality based on color, because there's such sort of disregard in general. But like anything in football, especially football, any sports, especially football being like the sport of the world, right? What is happening in the culture is reflected in the sport, a hundred percent, whether it's gender inequality or race inequality. What is happening in the culture is always reflected in the sport. So I can only imagine that when we are at a point where women's sports is a desirable sort of field to be in where we are in the United States, look at the United States, right? I mean, there's not a huge amount of people of color in either national team. So when sport becomes a desirable profession, that's when you start seeing, I think, most of the inequality. I think in the United States, I can say that one of the problems is, and I don't really know an answer for it, because it's a problem, it's a structural problem from the very bottom, right? It's it's the pay-for-play system. I know for a fact that my father, Neymar, Habingo, Mbappe, Drogba, Pogba, none of them would have made it to the national team in the United States. None of them would have made it to a team to be seen by anybody from the national team because no, they're all, none of them could afford it to go through the United States system, uh, which is really, really expensive. You know, And I love to tell people, my son played on this little team in uh, Forest Hills in Queens, New York. They were called Ilias Malvinas. They were uh, uh, an Argentinian team. Sorry, countrymen. Um, and they were all really little. And they were some of the best players I have ever seen in all of my children's you know, youth sports careers. And they were all, I'm fairly certain, first-generation Americans. 
So now until I think the United States, you know, we start tapping into, you know, I think the USA women's team is phenomenal. I also think they're unicorns. It's going to be very difficult to find another team like that in like 20 years. It's going to be the same thing as in the men's team. Unless we start making the major qualification for entry into professional sports in America, not money, we're not going to be winning a World Cup. And I think that with the amount of people in this country from countries where football is the number one sport, where they grew up watching football, their grandparents grew up watching football, and that are now first-generation Americans, we could win every World Cup. We could be France, basically. Well, certainly a lot of provocative and pressing issues uh, of the day, both in the United States as well as elsewhere in the world. Kelly, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. We'll see you next time for another edition of Global Sport Conversations.